So I grew up with an older brother and two younger sisters, and we really loved one another, but we didn't really hang out a lot together. Uh, you could say at times we didn't like one another, and we didn't have similar hobbies. We didn't have the same friend groups. Uh, we just didn't spend a lot of time around each other. There was a lot of emotion in the Skimbury house. We're, we're an Italian household, and so the volume level was always turned up. And we had very strong personalities between my brother and my two younger sisters. And my wife's family was radically different. And the first time I noticed that was when I hung out with them for the first time. And, and some of you have heard this story before, but the first time I actually spent time with her mom and her family, I was sitting on a couch and I had a glass of water, tea, and Megan's mother starts to play the piano. And she's a very, very good piano player. And she's playing beautifully on the piano. And I'm sitting here and I'm kind of like, okay, this is kind of weird, uh, but not that weird. You know, she's very good at the piano. Well, Megan starts to play her flute. I mean, it's just within seconds. Oh, oboe. I'm sorry, oboe. God. Glad I got that right. Her, her oboe. And she starts playing her oboe. And, you know, they're, they're, they're playing together. Okay, okay, it's getting a little bit weirder uh, here. But uh, my family would never do anything like this. Well, then her sister pulls out a flute out of nowhere like she's prepared for this moment. And they're just playing this beautiful music together. And I remember thinking to myself, what sort of, you know, universe did I step into here? Because my family would never do anything like this together. Every family is different. If you're married, the chances of your families being different is probably good. Every family is different. But each family has a level of dysfunction due to sin, whether it be your spiritual family or your biological family. Sin causes friction. Sin causes destruction and pain in every situation. And the family is not exempt, whether it be your family of birth or your spiritual family. Well, we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph throughout this entire summer. And there are theological layers to the story of Joseph. You have this idea of God fulfilling, partially fulfilling his promises through Joseph to bless all the nations. You see this idea of God being bigger than evil in chapter after chapter after chapter. You see the history connecting between the patriarchs and their arrival and life in Egypt. But at the ground level, it's an account of one family's dysfunction and God's faithfulness in, in restoring that family. And so today we're going to look at what fed that dysfunction, what fed that family dysfunction, and then we're going to look at how the gospel helps us as families to put down such things. So turn to Joseph 37. Turn to Joseph. I love seeing people reaching for their Bible, reaching for their phone. Uh, Genesis 37, because Joseph 37 is not a book in the Bible. You'll be looking all day. <laughs> Thank you. Genesis 37. Wait for y'all to get there. Awesome. We're going to read one through four to start us off. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings and the land of Canaan. 
These are the generations of Jacob. This is the story about Jacob and his sons. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So here we meet Jacob, the father, and his son Joseph, who's a teenager, the youngest of his brothers, except for Benjamin. And he's out with his brothers pasturing, watching over the flock. And Joseph brings a bad report of his brothers to his father, an action that probably alienated him from his brothers. Furthermore, Jacob is, or Joseph is singled out by his father as the favorite. And this favoritism is displayed through a coat. Here in the ESV, it says a coat of many colors. Other translations have an ornate robe or a long-sleeved robe. We don't know if this robe was a technicolor dream coat. We don't know what this robe actually looked like, but we know what it was meant for. It was meant as a sign of his father's favoritism, his father's favor on him and not his brothers. And because of these events, Joseph's brothers could not speak civilly with him. They could not be in the same room without getting angry at each other with the brothers speaking hatefully to him. You ever had a, a family moment like that or had siblings like that? You just had to keep them apart. Here's my first point. Favoritism feeds family dysfunction. Favoritism feeds family dysfunction. I mean, imagine for Christmas giving one of your children, you know, a PS5, uh, a car, and a jacket that says daddy's favorite on it. And then giving your other children, you know, a, a $10 gift certificate to TJ Maxx. It probably wouldn't go well. That sort of favoritism would feed dysfunction in the family. And you may say, well, that's ridiculous. I would never do something like that. And you may keep the gifts equal during Christmas time or the holidays as parents, but when it comes to care and attention, do you show favoritism? I'm going to be honest, some children are harder to care for than others. And I'm not talking about my kids. Each of my kids are special and amazing and perfect. Right, Asher? He's laughing at me right now. Uh, but some kids are what, you know, they call EGRs, extra grace required children. They're just harder. And that's not necessarily uh, your fault or anybody's fault. It's just the result of, of a broken world. And some children are just kind of easygoing. And, and mild-mannered, and they're, they're peacekeepers, and they just kind of go with the flow. And it's easy as a parent to drift towards the mild-mannered child. It's easy as a parent to drift towards the child you have stuff in common with. You have similar interests 
We must fight favoritism and spend time with care for and invest in all our children in a way that reaches them. I don't like Pokemon, but my son for years loved Pokemon. Uh, you still love Pokemon, right, Ed? Car. He loved Pokemon, but uh, it was, he kind of was growing up during a time where Pokemon Go was popular. And so as a father, for me to connect with him, I learned all about Squirtles and, and Bulbasaurs. Because as a dad, I want his interest to be my interest. My other daughter loves art. So I went to draw with her and spend time doing uh, little crafts with her. I want to be challenged to care for every single one of my kids the same amount. Each child is different. Each child needs love. We must also fight favoritism here in this family. It's It's easy, even in a church our size, to drift towards people you like. People that you share common interests with, people that you're similar to, people that are in your same life stage, because those other people are work. They require emotional energy, or they make me uncomfortable. They require patience and grace. That sort of understanding of the church, that sort of approach to other people in the church, it will slowly feed dysfunction. It will slowly feed division. Favoritism is is, is ugly. There's an entire book in the Bible, the book of James, that is a, essentially a letter uh, opposing favoritism. People were treating people differently. They were giving them places of honor in the church, and that breaks God's heart. But it's also important to understand why favoritism is ugly and why Jacob showed favoritism. Jacob's actually a product of favoritism. His father favored his, his brother Esau. His mother favored him, Jacob. So his parents demonstrated favoritism. And he picks up that favoritism in his own family. He loves Rachel, his wife, more than his other wife, Leah. There's favoritism there. And as a result, he loves Rachel's children, which Joseph is one of, more than he does Leah's or any of his other children. And what's the point I'm trying to make here is, is, you know, this hairline, this is inherited from my, this is my dad's hairline. If you've seen my father before, he is bald. This nose, the way it's shaped, is, is, is very much a skimbry nose. I inherited this from my father. We inherit the physical traits of our parents. We also inherit the habitual sins of our parents. We inherit the sin that our, that our parents demonstrate. Have you ever said something that your parents have said to you in anger or frustration and then said, I cannot believe that came out of my mouth? I asked two of my friends this week, what's the sin that you've inherited from your fathers? And they both said simultaneously, anger, anger. I've inherited uh, this Italian short fuse that my father has. Things could be great, but if I'm stressed, I'm very irritable. That's the same as as the men in my family. And my fear is to pass that on to my son. My fear is that that is a sin in my life that he sees and takes on himself. But, But here's our hope. Here's our hope with 
inherited sin, whether it be favoritism or anything else, is the gospel speaks to it. The changing power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit living in me. Through those things, I can actually break the chains of generational sin. Through faith, we become new creations. And in Christ, we have the ability through abiding in Christ to put a stop we've in, to the sin we've inherited from our parents so that it isn't picked up by our children. We don't have to give in to the same junk our parents did. I mean, we're always leaving a legacy. The question is, is what kind of legacy are we leaving? And, and through prayer, through repentance, through humility, I pray that there's things that I put a stop to that my fathers did before me. And I pray the same thing for my son because I'm going to pass on some junk to him as hard as I try. And I pray he looks at me and goes, I don't want to do what my father did. I want to repent of that as well. So Jacob inherited and displayed favoritism, a favoritism that divided his sons. And as we'll see next, that division grows. Look at verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this saying in mind. Throughout Genesis, dreams are actually associated uh, with God's revelation. If you had a dream, it was often God teaching something to you. And the second youngest, daddy's favorite, goes to his brothers and said, Guess what, guys? I've had two dreams. And in the first dream, my sheaf is going to stand up really tall. You know, my grain of wheat is going to stand up tall and, and, and all y'all are going to bow down to mine. And they get angry. And then the second dream, he says, the sun, the moon, i.e. mom and dad and, and my brothers, they too uh, will all bow down to me. Essentially saying that I am going to one day rule over this entire family in some way. And it, one day, my authority is going to be established with this family. Now, I don't know if Joseph was just naive. You know, maybe he didn't understand that his brothers hated him so much. I mean, generally, if somebody doesn't like you, 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 can, you feel it, right? Like you, you feel the death stare or, or the distance. And so, so I think this is either one of two things. It's either a lack of discernment on Joseph's part or it's just pride. It's just pride. Now, I want to make a little sub point here that I think is important, especially in our day and age and with your families, whether it be your biological family and spiritual family. 
you may speak truth. And, and what Joseph is speaking is truth, right? Most of us know the rest of the story. Joseph's not lying. God really gave him this dream. But you may be speaking truth, but, but time and tone matter. Time and tone matter. When you're speaking truth, your timing matters and your tone matters. How many less family squabbles would we see if we really thought about the truth we speak, you know, when we speak it and how we speak it? Because you may have the gospel truth, but you may share it with your family in a way that is prideful and arrogant, and you may also do it at a bad time. You may have uh, this, you may have the truth politically or scientifically or one of those things, but, but timing and tone both matter when we're speaking truth. Furthermore, as we see in this passage, a hatred growing from his brothers. Look at verse 4. It says that they hated him. Look at verse 5. Now they hated him more. Look at verse 8. Now they hated him even more than they did before. Now they hate him even more, more. In verse 11, it says they were jealous of him, which in context seems to be a stronger and deeper passion than hatred. And so we see this growing and growing into a word or into an emotion that I call envy. Their anger has boiled over into bitter envy. Like favoritism, here's, here's my second point. Like favoritism, envy also feeds family dysfunction. Envy is a, a feeling of discontentment or resentment that stems from someone having something you want. I'm going to say that again. It's a feeling of discontentment. I'm not happy with the way things are or resentment. I don't like them having more than me. That stems from someone having something you want. Now, most of us won't go as far as Joseph's brothers will in this story, but envy can enter into our families in subtle ways that feed dysfunction. My brother was a very gifted artist, and, and I was the athlete of the family. And this is, I'm not trying to be braggadocious here, but I want to give you kind of the, the juxtaposition between me and him. I was the athlete, the letterman, uh, the, the team captain. I was well known in my high school. And, and my brother uh, was, was a very gifted artist, but, but had some friends, but high school was pretty rough for him at times. I mean, people were kind of a jerk to him. But he was, as I said, an amazing artist. He actually went on to help make TV shows like Jimmy Neutron. He helped make the Jimmy Neutron. He designs video games, and now he's into virtual reality sort of like on top of thing. I mean, he's, he's a super gifted person. But, but when somebody would praise him for that gift, when we were young, I would get resentment in my heart. Even though I had all this stuff, all these things going on, I wanted the favor that he was receiving. I wanted to be praised. I also wanted to be a good artist and be praised for that as well. That's, that's envy. That's resentment. And that causes anger and disruption and division in a family. My other, my other sister and my brother-in-law, they're very successful. 
They, they do very well. They have a very nice house. They have worked hard in their life to, to these things. And, and they have a tritune. You know what a tritune is? It's like a pontoon with an extra tune in the middle. They have a tritune. They have a giant backyard with a, with a trampoline, one of those big old trampolines in it. And, and they send us videos and we're like, you know, our backyard is the size of this stage. Uh, we, we have barely anything that we can fit back there. And, and it's easy for me as the oldest to be, I want to be the successful one. I want, the, I want a quad tune. <laughs> I want two tunes in the middle of the other tunes. You know, I want a bigger boat. It's easy for me to, to downplay what, what they have been blessed with or they've been given or they've worked hard for. That's, that's envy. That's resentment. And if left unchecked, that'll destroy a family. Envy will also destroy your spiritual family. Envy will destroy this church. And I see it all the time as a pastor. Not in these great big ways, but in subtle ways. I think sometimes we look at other people's gifting and we say, man, I wish I was like that. I wish I was like that. I wish I was celebrated. Everybody loves them. They're praised. They're celebrated. I wish I could teach like they teach. I wish I could teach our kids like they teach our kids. And, and there's this feeling of discontentment. And, and I want that gifting. And I want the praises that come with it. That's envy. We see it with our families. And moms, it's easy to do this. Man, their family is so well put together. You know, their kids are well behaved. <laughs> their kids sit quietly during the family service while mine are hanging from these stinking chandeliers, making noise. I mean, what am I doing wrong? I wish I had a family like that. Now that seems subtle, but that sort of envy builds resentment. That resentment leads to frustration. That frustration boils over into anger and division. Here's the reality with envy. The gospel addresses envy. As we envy other people, we're really telling God, you and what you've given me are not enough. You and what you've given me are not enough. I need what they have. Have you ever seen the three Hobbit movies? They're the Hobbit movies that, you know, uh, am I the only nerd nobody else wants to admit? Thank you. Uh, and so in the Hobbit, they go to this mountain, and it's called the Lonely Mountain. It's the home of the dwarves. And this is what I think about when I think about this. And it's this mountain that is filled with a sea of, of gold and jewels and emeralds. It's of infinite value. And I think that's what God has given us. I think God sometimes looks at us and says, I have given you all of this and more. I have given you eternal life. I have given you my presence. I live and dwell within you. You are a new creation. I've given you all of this. So why are you worried about the trinkets that are in your friend's hand over there. I am the bread of life. I am the source of life. I have given you your heart's desire. I have given you enough. Don't worry about that other junk. Jacob has shown favoritism. 
Joseph has lacked discernment. Envy has rooted itself in the hearts of his brothers. Dysfunction abounds, and now it boils over. We're going to see in this passage uh, through 12 through, through 17 that Jacob sends Joseph to report on his brother's doings. And so they're out pasturing and and Jacob maybe doesn't understand how envious the brothers are with Joseph, or, or maybe he just really doesn't think that they're going to do anything bad to Joseph because he's daddy's favorite. But, but he sends them there. They're not where they're supposed to be. He gets directed to another place, and he approaches them. And in this whole narrative, the tension is building, like something bad is going to happen to Joseph. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. Now his brothers went to, a past, went to pasture their father's flock. I'm sorry, 18. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then he, we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. And so if Joseph, as Joseph approaches, they don't even call him by his name. They say, Hey, the big, the big dreamers come in here. So let's, let's kill him and prove that his dreams aren't real. That God really didn't send those dreams. That he's just being prideful and arrogant. Let's get rid of him. Let's murder him. And, and Reuben shows up and says, well, hey, let's just throw him in a pit or a cistern. And, and I always thought it was just kind of like a ditch on the side of the road. And I'm like, why can't Joseph get, get out of there? Like, it'd just be easy for Joseph. This is, doesn't seem like a good plan. But what it was is actually a big hole in the ground that was used to store water. So Joseph was either going to drown or he was going to die of exposure, starvation, dehydration. And so Reuben says, hey, we're going to throw him in the pit. But unbeknownst to his brothers, Reuben kind of plans to come back and save his brother. And on the surface, we're like, yay, Reuben. Way to go, Reuben. You're the good guy. No, he's not. Reuben, we tend to praise Reuben here, but there's a couple things to understand. One, if Reuben was really the good guy, wouldn't he just say, hey guys, let's stop this. Let's just, let's just not murder our brother today. You know, maybe this isn't a good idea. Number two, Reuben is on the outs with his father. He slept with his father's concubine. And so he had been on the outs with his father. We actually see this disgrace play out later on when Jacob is handing out the blessings. So I think Reuben is less concerned about Joseph's life and more concerned about this opportunity he has to get back in his father's good graces. There's a little bit of selfishness here on Reuben's part. So what happens next? Look at 23 through 28. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. 
Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, some bubble yum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our own hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So Joseph is thrown into this pit, the cistern. And we're later told that Joseph is actually here crying out to his brothers, save me, do not do this, show me mercy. And they just have a picnic. And they eat. And then Jacob has this idea as he sees these traders come and he's like, hey, we can't make any money killing our brother. So why don't we sell our brother. We can get rid of him and make some money. It's two birds, one stone situation, right? And so they pick up Joseph out of this pit and they sell him off to these traders who take him to Egypt and they sell him for 20 shekels, the cost of a slave. Look at 29 through 35. We'll finish up. When Reuben returned to the pit, And saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. Where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put a sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol. I'm going to die, and I'm going to die mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Reuben returns. He had evidently been gone to see this all play out. And he, he rips his clothes, not because of what has happened to Joseph, but because he has just lost an opportunity to impress his father. And they dip Joseph's coat, this symbol of favoritism that has become a symbol of their envy. And they dip it in blood and they lie to their father. And Jacob promises to mourn for Joseph until his dying day. Think about this. The brothers envied Joseph. They wanted their father's favor. Every son wants their father's favor. They wanted their father's favor. So their idea was to get rid of the one who their father's favor was upon. So if we get rid of him, then maybe some of that favor will now shower us. But ironically, what has happened? Their father will mourn for Joseph for the rest of his existence, reminding his sons that his deepest affections are not with them. 
but with their missing son, Joseph, who the father believes is now dead. And think about this. They lived under the shadow of this lie for years. And their father mourned day in and day out. What a, what a broken family. Brother turning on brother. A father displaying inherited sin. This is some Jerry Springer sort of stuff we see here. Fighting, bitterness, envy, pride. And now we see a family shattered. There's a lot to see about God in the book of Genesis. But one thing we're going to learn about God is that He is good and He loves to restore. Spoiler alert. God restores this family. That's what the rest of this book is about and more. It's about so much more. But at this ground surface level, we see God eventually restore this family. So I don't care how broken your family is. I don't care how messed up of a home life you've come from or how fractured your family is right now. If God can restore this family, he can restore and heal your family. If God can move mountains, he can restore your family. If God can restore the the mountain of pain and heartache in this family, he can restore and move the mountain of pain and hurt and division in your family. If this church family is like any other church family, there is some level of dysfunction. Now, I'm not saying this church isn't healthy or we don't love each other well. Um, It was so good to hear you guys give thanks for, for those things that you see God doing here. That blesses me. I know that blesses you. But there's always some level of dysfunction when you get sinful people in the same room. When you get more than two people in the same room, There's always a level of dysfunction, some tension in the relationship, some division or distress or or broken relationship or a heart that needs to be checked. If God can restore his children here, he can restore his children here in this room at Central Bible Church. And guys, I believe more than anything, We have to continually come back to the gospel to rid this environment of dysfunction. Satan wants to destroy what God has brought together here. And so he will make mountains out of molehills. He will make things seem bigger than they actually are to create frustration and division. And so it's so important It's so important for each and every one of us as God's children to start that process of restoration. People who've been transformed by the life-giving gospel, people who have a spirit working in them, we start that restoration by confessing sin, bringing it to the family table, putting it to death, and running from it. So here's my question for you. What do you bring to the family table that feeds dysfunction.
Now, I'm not worried about who's not here at the family table. Those who aren't here at the table, those who aren't there at your biological table, we can't control them. We can pray for them and ask God to do a work in them. But generally, when there's dysfunction, most, not all the time, but most of the time, there's plenty of blame to go around. And so what do you bring to the table that feeds dysfunction? Is it favoritism? Is it pride? A lack of discernment? Is it envy? Are you prone to envy? I mean, that's, social media is essentially built to make you envious. Do you give in to envy or do you give in to something else that, that we haven't talked about today? You know, selfishness, a loose tongue, bitterness. Do you lack grace as you talk to your family or other people in the church? Whatever it is, confess it, repent of it, throw off that sin that so easily entangles you and fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, your Redeemer, your Sanctifier, your source of life, your pattern for living, and the author and perfecter of your faith. Amen?